Well, you know, I stood at my mom's grave at this, um, it was so hot the day she was buried. And I remember saying to the preacher that we had never laid eyes on before, get her in the ground as quickly as you can. It is so hot. She would have a fit if she knew these old people were standing out here in this heat. But I uh, promised myself that day that I would spend the rest of my life trying to help other families have experiences similar to what we had, but that it wouldn't have to be so hard for them to do it. And I had no idea what that meant. And I thought, well, maybe it means to start a hospice. But um, I said to you, mom died in July and we, we didn't know when she would die. And so I was kind of off of my volunteer pattern. I had lived my life very much in her footsteps and I didn't know what I was going to do with all this time because I had been consumed with caregiving for months. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your time. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. So can you state your full name and three or four sentences about who you are and what you do? So I am Myra J. Christopher, and I am retired. I was the founding director of the Center for Practical Bioethics. My life work focused on uh, improving care of the seriously ill and dying and their families and on chronic pain. So I'm sort of your good time party girl. I feel like it's it's not it's not the maybe the the most upbeat of of topics, but it is one of the most impactful for those experiencing. Well, it's one out of one. You know, one out of one of us will experience it. And um, actually, Sam, this sounds odd when I say this to people, but my life work was quite joyful because I was driven to do this work. And uh, I had success that was beyond anything I could ever have imagined or planned for. And a sense that my work um, had meaning and purpose and um, that it did actually make the lives of people at a very difficult time better. So I want to actually go back to maybe the, the source of some of this inspiration. Um, and talk a little bit about your mother. Um, can you tell me about your maybe favorite memory of her from like childhood or young adulthood? She she was just a fun person. She was a beautiful woman. She and my dad had a, a great marriage. Our home is the place where people gathered. There was always something going on. I, on Saturday mornings, my dad had this really pretty curly hair and he would go to the barber shop and get his hair done. And then he would come home, but on the way he would stop at Charlie's Meat Market and he would buy a whole thick sirloin and a couple of chickens and some sausage. And he'd get home and mom would say, now, Ralph, what do you think we're going to do with all that food? And he said, well, we're going to cook it. I don't know. Somebody will come by. And so there was kind of a constant party going on at our house. 
she was, you know, the head of the PTA and the president of the Booster Club and president of the Garden Club. And um, as soon as she would get us off to school, she had something to go and do. So she was a great gal, my very best friend. Did you feel inspired by the life she led? Oh, absolutely. By the life both of my parents led. When we were little, if I would say to my dad, you know, dad, I'm bored, you know, I want want something to do. Or he would say to us that there was only one thing he wanted in life, and that was for my brothers and I to be happy. And he said, the way you are happy is you love and take care of your family. You find meaningful work and you do it to the best of your ability. And you always do something for others because there's always someone who has less than do you. So um, it, I was raised kind of around those principles and um, you know, raised in Texas where at that time um, it was kind of a culture when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And you don't whine, you kind of suck it up and do what you need to do. So I think my childhood really was a great preparation for doing the work that I, I did. Uh, you know a little bit about my mother's um, illness and death. Yeah. So can you actually maybe talk a little bit about um, how you first found out that there was something wrong with your mom? My dad uh, died of a sudden coronary event, of a sudden heart attack at age 50. Mom was um, consumed with grief. She took Valium, but she just didn't feel well. And she kept losing weight and was distraught. And um, ultimately, we said, you've got to you know, see somebody else. And we had just moved to Kansas City. So we um, didn't know doctors here in Kansas City, but connected um, through neighbors, if I remember, to a physician at Kansas University Medical Center, KU Med Center, and um, had a bunch of tests. And I remember that she had an appointment, a follow-up appointment scheduled. And um, they called and said they'd like to see her sooner than that time. And so I went with her. And we were told that she had a rare stomach cancer and that it was very advanced and that they thought she would die within months. But there were some new medications. There was a new drug that's still being used, a chemotherapy agent, that perhaps would extend her life. And the, there was a surgeon at KU who was very eager to do a surgical procedure that had been done um, I believe at the University of Chicago, but had not been done in Kansas City. And uh, he wanted to remove her stomach and to try to make her a food pouch. So we got a lot of bad news all at once. When we headed home, uh, we didn't talk on the way home. And mom and I talked about everything and mom walked through the house and went outside and gardened for a while and came back in and I can still see her taking her gloves off and sitting down and saying, we need to talk. I I know that I am dying. My mother, whether it was um, fortuitous or uh, tragic, 
died of the same disease that her mother died of. And so she had experience and knowledge of what her trajectory was likely to be. And she told us then that she had decided that she would like to take the very aggressive course because they had told her with treatment, they thought she had a 50% chance of living two years and that she would like to go for two years. And she almost made it. She died a week short of two years. She died the year before hospice was established in the United States. And we were able to get the best care possible for her. On Mother's Day weekend, um, before she died in July, she had to have an emergency surgery because a tumor had blocked a a bile duct and she had puffed up like a little frog. And um, they told us that her cancer had spread and that the surgeon said it was as though someone had pitched a scoop of gravel at her and everywhere it had landed, there were tumors. So she said, I want to go home and die. And um, again, that was not a very common thing at that point. And we said, well, we'll we'll do it. You know, we'll give it our best shot. And we were, our family was um, committed to seeing that she could die at home and die the way she chose to. And although it was without question the most difficult arduous time in my life. Um, Those two years were also a time of great meaning and uh, creativity and uh, sharing and uh, learning from one another. And what do you think your biggest takeaway was or biggest learning lesson was going through this experience? And like, did you think, although this was tragic and hard, the fact that she got to die at home that something that you wanted to give to other people or even thought about? The morning my mom died, it was very peaceful and we were all there. And (laughs) this sounds so bizarre to people and I don't know that I've ever told this publicly. My mom was a beautiful woman and she was a little bit vain and she had made me promise that I wouldn't take her wig off of her. She didn't want to be seen as emaciated and bald. And so after she died, my sister-in-law and I got her wig back on her and did her makeup and did her nails and prepared her where she would want to be seen. And uh, because it was at a time that was prior really to the palliative care end of life movement, because she died at home, her death had to be investigated. So we had early in the morning fire trucks and police cars and all kinds of people coming in and out of our house. And um, I remember when, you know, bless their hearts, the EMS providers had been there for a long time. And when they finally were able to come upstairs where my mom's bedroom was and to take her body, um, they were putting her on a gurney. And my sister-in-law, who's just precious, said to them, oh, for Pete's sake, be careful, her nails are wet. Hmm. And I remember thinking, I bet they think we're all crazy. <laughs> but it was, um, it was a really meaningful time 
so knowing this through your, you know, your own experience with your mother, how did you start developing this experience and, and giving people that choice to, to die at home? Like, how did you start developing these ideas for others? Well, again, I stood at my mom's grave at this, um, it was so hot the day she was buried. And I promised myself that day that I would spend the rest of my life trying to help other families have experiences similar to what we had, but that it wouldn't have to be so hard for them to do it. I had read about Dame Cecilia Saunders in England that she had started St. Christopher's Hospice. And I thought, well, maybe it means to start a hospice. And I decided that I would go back to school. I would take a course over at the University of Missouri here in Kansas City on death and dying. And that it would give me a chance to kind of process our experience and frankly, to think through what this commitment I had made to myself was. So I took this course in death and dying and absolutely God hated it. Wait, why, wait, why did you hate it so much? Well, it was taught by a woman who was a behavioral psychologist and she had experienced the death of a child. And frankly, I believe she used the course to perpetually grieve. Um, I made an appointment with her and said, you know, this course description, what you're doing is nothing like this course description. And she said, well, there's a philosopher here on campus that I think you should take a course from, Dr. Hans Wuffelmann, and enrolled in a course with him. And the very first day of class, uh, he presented a case study about a young man who had been diagnosed with terminal lymphoma his parents did not want him told because they were afraid he would give in and would not fight this disease. And his wife believed he had a right to know. And I thought, wow, this is where I want to be. This is what I need to talk about, what I want to learn about. So I spent seven years at the University of Missouri. Um, and he was one of the three people who had this idea that we should have a bioethics center in Kansas City. I thought, you know, I can run a PTA. I can surely do this. <laughs> so, um, I agreed. And um, they shared their vision with me. And I said, let's see what we can do. So for the first year of my work at the center, I was a full-time volunteer. I was not paid to do my work. I would go and talk to people and I would tell them what we were trying to do. And if we were able to pull this off, what would you do to help us make it happen? And at the end of that year, I had sorted those conversations by people's concerns. And I went to the board of this brand new organization and said, I think there's a real need here. People are really struggling. It's so hard. You know, it was not at all clear whether people had a right to die. Uh, suicide was against the law in almost every state. But it was a time when medical technology had really surpassed our understanding of what our duties and obligations are to one another. So you had this almost car wreck kind of situation where medicine was just going like crazy with all these new innovations and life-saving treatments and technologies. 
and doctors and nurses were not being trained about what to do when it doesn't work. And lawyers were beginning to be concerned about what authority physicians had and should have and shouldn't have. And it really was quite an interesting time. We also wanted to bring patients and families to the table and think about were there different ways that we could do things. Could we find resolutions or remedies that at least moved us in the directions of honoring patients and their families and respecting their autonomy, no matter who they were? And I want to talk about some of the the big wins that you had in that pursuit. Bioethics in general, the purpose is the ethical discourse and action to advance the health and dignity of all persons, right? So you're focusing on health and dignity, not necessarily life extension, which are not always the same thing. What are some of the biggest wins that you had on that journey in the first um, you know, couple of years? You know, we worked our tails off, but we also were very lucky. We knew of a document that had been created called a living will document. Uh, It was a document where people could actually record what their wishes were. The problem with the documents as they existed then was they said it was a moral document. It had no binding legal authority. We as a community said, you know, we can fix this. We can take these so-called living will documents and we can get the everybody, all the parties, all the stakeholders to come up with a document and then we can, in a sense, sell it to all of our hospitals. And at that point, we had 36 hospitals. And um, we began to think, well, how do we how are we going to do this? You know, we're this little tiny staff of people. And we decided that the way we could do that was by helping these hospitals establish ethics committees. Now, tragically, at the same time, and kind of in our own backyard, um, there was a case involving a young woman named Nancy Beth Cruzan down in Southern Missouri who had been injured, um, sustained a life-threatening injury in a single car accident. And after eight years of treatment, experimental treatment, extreme treatment, her parents came together and said, it's time for us to let her go. And after, uh, I think it was 19 different legal proceedings, Nancy Beth Cousin versus the Public Health Department, the state of Missouri, was the first so-called right to die case to go before the U.S. Supreme Court. Bill Colby, who was the attorney representing the family, called me one day and said he was working on this brief that he had to get to the courts pronto. And um, he said, what if I sent a taxi cab over and picked up those documents? And I said, well, I'll surely have them ready for you. But as we were hanging up, I said, hey, Colby, what's this kid's name? And he said, her name is Nancy Beth Cruzan. So I could never have imagined how that conversation would have impacted my life, um, the organization I was trying to bring together, or um, medicine in this country. 
Yeah. So what what did change because of that conversation? What were the outcomes? Well, the outcomes were quite clear. Ultimately, what came of that was clear legal framework that was morally supported as well. That in fact, adults with capacity have the right to choose or refuse any life-sustaining treatment to make advanced directives and to state what they would wish in the event that they're unable to express that themselves. Also that people with capacity have the right to name a surrogate or an agent to act on their behalf in the event that they're not able to express their own autonomy to be self-determining and that that includes the right to make decisions even if it shortens life. So the culmination of that case really was federal law called the Patient Self-Determination Act. I love that story. And I was wondering, like, do you have any advice that you could give to people who are experiencing that kind of end of life treatment and any ideas on like how people should approach and think of death? I do. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've said from time to time that I think we need to put billboards in all of our major cities that say one out of one die. This is a common experience that every one of us will have. So we need to think about how we want to do it, what's important to us in this very last chapter of our lives. And we need to talk to our families about our wishes. And, you know, there are a lot of occasions, dear Lord, in these last two years with COVID, there have been so many tragically, nearly a million people in the United States who've experienced death. Well, that's a springboard, if nothing else, to say, hey, you know, we need to think about this. And once people have had those conversations, they need to name someone they trust to act on their behalf. They need to make a durable power of attorney and express the person that they wish to be their agent and name an alternate in the event that they uh, that person can't act on their behalf. But they need to make everybody in their family aware of it because the most tragic thing I've ever seen in my life is to have a person dying in a hospital bed with children outside the room arguing about what's the right thing to do for mama. So it is really our responsibility, I think, not just that we get what we want, but that we leave those who survive us in a position where they can say, you know, we, we knew what she wanted. We did the best we could do to make that happen and that they could have peace of mind that, in fact, they honored their loved one at that time. And I think, Sam, really, that's kind of the beginning and the ending of my story. When my mom died, I felt great peace come over me that we had honored her and had loved her to the fullest extent. And I think that's what all families can do if they just can be brave enough to say, you know, there's something I want to talk to you about. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe 
rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee Buchanan, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibada Thrive, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Jonathan Ross, and Diana Marie Kandaza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.